This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett from Zoomer Radio, AM740. Welcome to the Audio Imaginarium. It is so good to be here with you, and as always, thank you for your company. I can't see you, but I know you're out there. And uh, well, there's so much to tell you. Uh, Ed Haslam is standing by, and he'll join us in just a few moments uh, to talk about the connection between a cancer researcher, uh, rather the murder, the grisly murder of a cancer researcher by the name of I mean, the, by the name of Dr. Mary Sherman, uh, the development of the polio vaccine, a cancer-causing monkey virus, and the assassination of JFK. So stay tuned. Ed will be here. Uh, very shortly. Now, this is great news uh, for those of you who try and catch the show each week on our flagship station, AM 740 Zoomer Radio, especially if you're in the uh, the downtown core here in Toronto. It can be a little tricky. Uh, what with the, uh, to pull in the uh, the uh, AM signal, what with the uh, overhead wires, or maybe you're driving under the Gardner Expressway on Lakeshore and all the steel and glass towers, uh, the old amplitude modulation isn't um, getting it done for you, perhaps. Well, uh, we are going to begin simulcasting on a new FM transmitter. And you'll be able to listen to Zoomer Radio and this program, The Conspiracy Show, on 96.7 FM. Now, right now, if you go there, they're testing the transmitter and they're playing uh, music. But at some point, they're going to flip the switch, middle of September, maybe during this program, and you'll be able to listen to all the programs on Zoomer Radio on AM 740 and on 96.7 FM. And I got to tell you, when I was driving in under the Gardner Expressway, I flipped it over to 96.7, and it sounds Amazing. Beautiful sound. All right. Last week, uh, I mentioned the new website and the new landing page. I believe I said incorrectly strangeplanet.com. No. Correction. It's going to be strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.ca, or if you type in strangeplanet.tv. Both of URLs, both of those URLs will take you to the new landing page. Uh, but there's still – I don't understand this stuff. But the host, my good friends at StormWeb, they're migrating everything over to the new server. Does that sound – all right. Ian in the other room is nodding his head. I guess that's – I think that's the correct uh, <laughs> terminology. So if you go there now, it, it goes nowhere. RichardSarrett.com, still operational. It will continue to be operational, but in a few days – strangeplanet.ca and .tv. I'll be directing you there from now on. That's the landing page. From there, you can go to the radio page, which will look exactly the same. If you're a member, if you've registered, don't worry. 
Nothing is going to change. But it's far easier to direct people to strangeplanet.ca. It's easier to remember, easy to spell. Uh, so there'll be a radio section. There'll be a live event section. And there'll be a television section. And speaking of the TV show, very pleased, excited, thrilled uh, to announce that season four of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, the television program, season four is a go. We have liftoff and we will have brand new episodes airing across Canada on Vision TV this fall. I believe the, the uh, debut is in October, but I will get a precise date for you. So we are in a mad dash to get these episodes ready for delivery. Uh, in fact, the minute I leave the studio tonight, I'm getting ready to hit the road to tape some more interviews. Uh, we've been working like fiends, i got to tell you, to, uh, to deliver these episodes on time. And we are, when I say we, Film One, of course, uh, Vision. We're excited about what we've got for you. Uh, more details upcoming. But once again, Season 4 of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett, the television program, will air this fall across Canada on Vision TV. All right, looking through the glass, Ian Robertson is here. You've got to see this young man, 22 years old, fresh-faced, looks like a throwback from the 1950s. His hair is slicked back. In fact, you play in a rockabilly band, do you not, Ian? He looks like, he might, I'm, I'm wondering whether he's a, a time traveler. He could be. He could be here from uh, the 1950s. Uh, anyway, he's in the other studio turning the knobs and dials. Albert Vinzel is here, as per usual, running our HOA. That's a hangout on air. And you know the drill. If you want to stream this radio program, uh, and uh, it's very simple. All you need to do, if you, need to, if you want to stream the video so you can watch my enormous head right here in the studio, <laughs> uh, just go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett. Go to the top of the feed and look for the tweet containing the HOA link. And you just click on that and you're in. And now you can watch the Conspiracy Show. You can listen to the Conspiracy Show uh, at the same time. It's very simple. Very simple to do. All right. Let's get this uh, party started. Uh, July of 1964. So over 50 years ago, the grisly discovery of the tortured remains of cancer researcher Mary, Dr. Mary Sherman, uh, were discovered in her apartment, or was discovered in her apartment in New Orleans. And this unsolved murder mystery journeys through some of the principal protagonists in the JFK assassination saga, including Lee Harvey Oswald and David Ferry, to name a few. The book is called Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. Ed Haslam has spent, or spent his first 35 years living in New Orleans. He personally heard and saw things that involved the investigation into the Kennedy assassination uh, that didn't quite add up. And uh, he's documented it all quite nicely in this book, as I say, Dr. Mary's Monkey. And a great pleasure to welcome Ed Haslam to The Conspiracy Show. Ed, how are you? 
I'm good, Richard. Thank you. Good to be here. Uh, it's actually a, a kind of a reunion. I don't know if you recall. I know you've done hundreds of radio programs, but I had you uh, uh, back, uh, oh, at least I'm guessing 10 years ago. Uh, on a, uh, a program at another station, another lifetime. Uh, and I know that you've, uh, since that time, uh, well, uh, last year it was, I believe, you, uh, you published an updated version of the book. Uh, what, what, uh, what's different about the 2014 edition? Is there uh, new information, breaking information in that book? Yeah, there's a whole bunch of it. Uh, we got 25 um, new pages of text. Um, including documents from the FBI, the CIA, the CDC, and the uh, New Orleans Police Department. We also have the actual crime scene photos that we didn't have before. So, um, And if anybody wants to look at those, if you're sitting in front of a computer, you can go to drmarysmonkey.com, but spell out Dr. D-O-C-T-O-R, and right up at the top of the landing page it says Hottest Cold Case in America. Just click on that. And uh, it'll take you to the crime scene photos, so you can see what we're talking about. They uh, are grisly, and and you you put that uh, that warning up on the website, you know, to warn people because they are incredibly grisly. Um, but before we talk about the murder scene and and Dr. Mary Sherman, uh, if you could just spend a few moments and talk to us about New Orleans in the 1960s. This was. A very, I mean, it, it's an important city today, but at that time, there was a lot of stuff going on in New Orleans. It was really a really vital town. Tell us about it. Well, New Orleans is in Nor- the mouth of the Mississippi River. I mean, the largest commercial waterway in America. And um, the trade was with South and Central America. And it's always been a very um, volatile political place, but it had, at the time, the strongest um, delegation to Washington, D.C. in the country. And so it was very powerful. And um, <clears throat> the the issue of um, communism and the revolution in Cuba and the potential for other revolutions in um, other countries like Guatemala and, and stuff uh, caused a, a great deal of um, concern in New Orleans. And there were even businesses there like the Ochsner clinic, which was set up to take care of the oligarchy of uh, Central and South America. So you had those kind of connections, and you had the entire, you know, trade community there. And so in 1959, when Castro took over and he started aligning himself with the Soviet Union and confiscating um, Mr. Rockefeller and Mr. Bush's um, assets and oil wells and factories and stuff down in uh, Cuba and started confiscating the casinos and hotels owned by the American mafia, um, it created a, a, a big problem. And it, it, the response was an embargo, and that embargo took 25% of the trade out of New Orleans. So uh, Cuba really ouched New Orleans big time. And the, when Fidel and Shea were talking about taking the uh, uh, revolution to uh, Central and South America, well, there go the bananas and there go the coffee beans and stuff. And then, um, you know, so it became a very, real hotbed of anti-communism and a lot of political power. The CIA was all over the place in New Orleans because, you know, they'd want to interview any businessman who traveled to Central and South America to get his take on the climate and the people and the politics and all that stuff. So that's what it was. It was kind of a hotbed of, of stuff. And, of course, New Orleans has always uh, 
played by looser rules than most of America. And, and um, so it was a, a, a great city for the CIA to operate in. And, and for you, how did this obsession, if I can call it that, I think that's an, an apt term, um, how, did, how did it develop for you? I mean, most people, I would say 90% of people had never heard of Dr. Mary Sherman, this a cancer researcher. How did you become involved in this whole investigation? Well, first of all, I sat on Mary Sherman's lap as a child. She and my father were good friends. They were both professors of orthopedic surgery at Tulane Medical School, so they were professional colleagues. And when she died, it was big news at home. And, you know, my father would tell my mother things. My mother would eventually tell me. And so I learned things about Dr. Mary Sherman that the uh, public did not know and some things about her murder that the public did not know. And, um, and... When Jim Garrison, uh, you remember the DA of New Orleans, who, of who did the uh, JFK investigation, in 1967, in October, he gave an interview that was published in uh, Playboy magazine. And in that, he said that his investigators had connected um, David Ferry, who was his primary suspect in the JFK assassination, with Dr. Mary Sherman and some secret cancer research that they were doing and that they had 2,000 mice in cages and and stuff like this and you know it, it was through that background i mean m- the jfk researchers who knew about this or, or read the article didn't know who mary sherman was exactly listen we'll we'll find out exactly who dr mary sherman was ed haslam is with us dr mary's monkey and our conversation continues right after this on the conspiracy show stay with us welcome back edward t haslam my guest and he is the author of dr mary's monkey how the unsolved murder of a doctor, a secret laboratory in New Orleans, and a cancer-causing monkey virus are linked to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. All right, let's talk about this uh, the secret laboratory uh, that Dr. Mary Sherman uh, was working at. Um, we need to start with Mary Sherman. Yes. Who was Mary Sherman? Mary Sherman was a world-class scientist, Okay. She was published, widely published, in the peer-reviewed journals in both radiation and cancer, okay? She was the chair of the pathology committee of the American Academy of Orthopedic Surgeons. And so when you take somebody with these kind of credentials, and then you say, but they're working in an underground medical laboratory with a political wacko like David Ferry, who's got no formal medical training, and is full of political agendas. He's flying in and out of Cuba for the CIA. He's flying Carlos Marcello, the mafia boss, around. You have to say, what is going on here? Exactly, exactly. And so that question really drove my first book, which is 20 years ago now, Mary Ferry and the Monkey Virus. But um, so that was one thing I knew. And the other thing I knew, and my mother told me this, was that Mary Sherman's arm was missing. Okay. And, um, you know, I asked my father, I, I said, how'd you know Mary Sherman's arm was missing? He said, well, they asked me to go over to the morgue and take a look at the, the body and, uh, you know, offer an opinion on what happened, uh, which he didn't tell me what his opinion was, but he did answer my question. At any rate, about 30 years later, 28 years later, I went to the public library and I got the um, uh, documents. I got the uh, au- autopsy protocol, the police reports and the homicide report. And the um, all the uh, newspaper articles 
that were written uh, about the thing at the time. It was front page news for about two weeks. And as I put them into two stacks on my kitchen table and I read through each of the stacks, I realized that there was something in the official documents that was never told to the public. And that was when they found Mary, what they told the public was that Mary Sherman was naked and she had been stabbed seven or eight times by an intruder and um, burglary was suspected and, you know, um, oh, and her body was set on fire. Okay. What they didn't tell the public was that her entire right arm and ribcage had been disintegrated by heat. I mean, there was nothing in her apartment on fire except the mattress. This is a mattress fire, and mattress fires just don't disintegrate bones. They're not nearly hot enough, okay? And as you look at the photos, you can see this very clearly. It's also written very clearly in the autopsy report. Her entire right arm and ribcage are gone. You can stand there and see the internal organs of her body because the heat was so extreme. What would do that, a laser? Right next to that is unburned human hair. It's like a laser was used. It's an enormously powerful um, force of either uh, electricity or radiation. But once you realize that, then you say, well, what caused this? The toaster? I mean, there's nothing in her apartment that could have possibly burned off her right arm and ribcage. And once you realize that, now you got your hands on the story. You realize that whatever happened to her right arm and ribcage happened somewhere else, and they brought her body back to her apartment, and they faked the murder scene. Right, right. All right, so this leading cancer researcher, how did she get lured, if I can use that term, into this, this laboratory? Well, you, you ask who she works for. She works for Dr. Alton Oshner. And Dr. Oshner has a 40-year history of secret assignments for the American military and uh, intelligence agencies. And at the time, starting in 1962, um, remember 1962, fall of 1962 was the Cuban Missile Crisis, right? We're talking about Russian nuclear-tipped missiles pointing at New Orleans from Cuba, right? And so the CIA is very upset with this. The, the mafia is really upset with Castro because they double-crossed him, and Lancey's got a million-dollar contract out on Fidel. And so in December of 1962, the CIA gets together with the leaders of the mafia in America and, and sets up Operation Mongoose, and the purpose of Operation Mongoose is to figure out some way, by hook or crook, if you will, to kill Fidel Castro. Right. They were even thinking about strapping bombs on dolphins so that when he took his uh, ritual morning swim in the ocean, <laughs> they could take him out that way. I mean, there were some yeah, crazy and, and ideas. botulism on a scuba diving suit, exploding cigars, I mean, all kind of stuff. But G- Giacana's son wrote a book about his father's operations, and he point- and, and Giacana was involved in Mongoose, and he said one of the things they were doing was looking for an injectable form of cancer. Aha. Uh-huh. And so our story, actually, the backstory on this comes out of the polio epidemic. And the polio epidemic triggers the demand for a polio vaccine, and they grew the polio vaccine on monkey kidney cells. And when they made the polio vaccine of the 1950s, they got the viruses that were in the monkey kidney cells in the polio vaccine. And after they had released 100 million doses of this, they realized that there was a cancer-causing virus in the polio vaccine. As 
HPV-40. Yes. And this is the oral vaccine. Well, actually, it's both. Uh, Salks was totally injected, but Salks was withdrawn after three weeks. Most people don't know this. Uh, but it, it was withdrawn and went for six months without a vaccine. Then they came back with Sabin's vaccine, which started out being an injection and then wound up being a sugar cube uh, around 1959 or 1960. But both of those were grown on monkey kidney cells, and on those uh, monkeys were Asian monkeys but, uh, called um, rhesus monkeys, but they were caged in um, at the pharmaceuticals in cages with African monkeys like the African greens, and they got cross-infected. So you wind up with not only SV40 in the polio vaccine, but also SIV, which is the ancestor virus to HIV-1. Aha, uh-huh. ground zero. Ground zero. So the question is, what did they do once they knew? I mean, we're talking about the biggest mistake in history, okay? They realized that they had just mass inoculated the American blood supply and some other blood supplies um, with a cancer-causing virus. So the first thing they did was stamp it secret. They didn't want to tell anybody they did it. The other thing is they wanted to get really busy looking for a solution, like coming up with an anti-cancer vaccine. Right. But in the meantime, they didn't want anybody to know that viruses could even cause cancer. There would have been mass panic. How many people had taken the vaccine again, Ed? Well, they produced 200 million doses. At the time they figured this out, which is in the late 50s, 100 million doses had been um, distributed and inoculated into people. And there were still another 100 million on the shelf. And they couldn't take the other 100 million off the shelf without saying why. You know, so they kept handing out the contaminated vaccine, even though they knew it was contaminated. Good Lord. Now, a quick aside, but it's an important one. Uh, does, does anyone have an, a handle on, I mean, I don't, know, I don't even know if this is knowable, but how many, and I'm talking here about the, the legacy of the polio vaccine, how many of today's cancers, what percentage perhaps, may be attributed to the polio vaccine? Well, I write about that in my book. I have the graphs there. What we have is an explosion of um, soft tissue cancers following the polio uh, um, vaccine. Okay? So I'm looking at, they got back about 20 cases of cancer for every one case of polio. And the dimensions of the the cancer epidemic, and again, I'm going to talk American statistics because I happen to know what they are. You know, but we have September 11th, um, 2001, the uh, the World Trade Center attacks. We lost three and a half thousand people to terrorism that day. That same day, we lost three thousand people to cancer. The next day, we lost three thousand people to cancer. We've lost over 12 million people to cancer since September 11th. Mm, my which word. greatly outweighs the number we lost to terrorism. True. My word. Twelve million. When you put it, in, you know, uh, it's pretty stark. Pretty stark. Uh, and so, Dr. Sherman was working on an antidote. Did she know that's what she was doing? Yeah. Dr. Sherman knew all about the contamination of the polio vaccine, okay? And she... Her best friend in, in medical school was Sarah Stewart. It was Sarah Stewart that discovered um, what later became known as SV40. They named it polyoma. 
Um, but she was a researcher up at the National Cancer Institute. And so they set out to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. This is 1960-61. And so they set up this medical Manhattan project out in New Orleans. They didn't want anybody to know about it because, you know, <laughs> the secret would come out. You know, what are you doing and why? And so they set up a linear particle accelerator on the grounds of the U.S. Public Health Service Hospital, which is a federal hospital, mostly for military people, but it's guarded by the Marines. So there's no real casual traffic there, and it had about 13 buildings on the campus, and one of these buildings in the back, they set up this 5 million uh, volt um, radioactive uh, piece of equipment capable of generating gamma rays, okay? And they were using this to mutate the monkey viruses to see if they could come up with a vaccine. Now, along comes 1962, again, with the Russian missiles in Cuba and Operation Mongoose, and it is decided that they are going to weaponize this. And again, it's going to be done in secret and cellularized and need to know and all that stuff. So that's when they bring in this gal from um, uh, Florida, who's at the University of Florida at the time. But th this gal, whose name is Judy, or Judith Very Baker, her full name, um, when she was in high school, she was um, giving cancer to mice in seven days, which was faster than they were able to do it at the National Cancer Institute. And so when the head of the American Cancer Society, I mean, the top brass there, realized they had a high school student that was outperforming NCI with no budget and in a dirt floor laboratory, they realized they had an asset that they could use to do secret research. And they had a question they wanted to ask. I mean, th think about this question for a minute. Just focus on it. If you take somebody who's had the polio vaccine and now has SV40 in their blood, and you put that person in front of an x-ray machine and go, zap, will you trigger the cancer? Mm. Right. Because that one question threatens the entire use of x-ray in medicine. And, and, and when you get your hands around that, now you know why they don't want to ask the question in public. Okay, because Indeed. it lets Indeed. the cat out of the bag. Right, right. So Judy is doing this secret research for them down at the University of Florida. She's got radiation. She's got melanoma cell, human melanoma cells. Uh, she's got animals, and she is writing up her results every month and sending them in to Dr. Alt Noshner, again, with the 40-year history of working with the American military. And Oshner um, calls her in the spring of 1963 and says, Judy, how'd you like to skip the last two years of medical school? I mean, uh, college, and we can start your medical school in the fall. We'll pay your tuition, your room and board, give you a stipend, and you'll be working. Uh, we just need you to do one little thing for us. We need you to come in town into New Orleans this summer and uh, help us with some cancer research, and you'll be working with that famous cancer researcher, Dr. Mary Sherman. Uh, would, would you like to do this, Judy? <laughs> I don't want to jump ahead too much, but we are heading into a break, and it's interesting. Judy uh, has been on the, on this program, uh, and it's all starting to make sense. That was no chance encounter at the post office with Lee Harvey Oswald. A absolutely not. Lee was in town 24 hours before he intercepts Judy. All right. We, we'll, we'll circle back to that time permitting, but uh, Ed Haslam is with us. And uh, he has unraveled a mystery, the hottest cold case perhaps in history, the murder, the grisly murder of Dr. Mary Sherman. The book is Dr. Mary's Monkey, How the Unsolved Murder of a Doctor, a Secret Laboratory in New Orleans, and Cancer-Causing Monkey Viruses 
our link to Lee Harvey Oswald, the JFK assassination, and emerging global epidemics. More of our conversation when The Conspiracy Show returns. Stay with us. Ed Haslam is with us. We'll get back uh, to our conversation about Dr. Mary's monkey in uh, just a moment. I just wanted to give you a heads up. For all of you L.A. Marzulli fans, the Nephilim trilogy and, of course, the uh, the television program, The Watchers series, uh, I'm bringing L.A. Marzulli to town, to Toronto, uh, in November, November the 4th, along with Carl Gallup's the author of Final Warning uh, and others. And we're calling this event As in the Days of Noah. It's all about fallen angels, the Nephilim, uh, giants, uh, and the the trumpet days of Revelation. That's uh, upcoming in November, and there'll be more details. Uh, but tickets will be on sale at our uh, good friends Patrick and Kadena's uh, bookshop, Conspiracy Culture, uh, in just days. All right, so keep checking their website, conspiracyculture.com. L.A. Marzulli, Carl Gallup's coming to town as in the days of Noah. All right, uh, Ed Haslam stays with us till the top of the hour, and we are talking about Dr. Mary Sherman and uh, the, the monkey virus, SV40, which, um, well, the, the polio vaccine was tainted with SV40, and how many untold cancers uh, caused by that? Uh, she was part of a team that was desperately trying to find, uh, I guess, the antidote for that. Now, um, David Ferry, of course, uh, one of the uh, the prominent figures in the JFK assassination, he met Lee Harvey Oswald in New Orleans at the, the Civil Air Patrol um, at some point. Why was David Ferry, of all people, working in this laboratory? Well, they needed some sort of safe house um places to conduct this research uh, that so that the public wouldn't find out what they were doing. So they took a, a bunch of mice that had been over at Oshner's clinic uh, uh, originally at the time the clinic moved to a new location, and they just brought them over to Louisiana Avenue Parkway and put them in an apartment. And it's a three-story building, and the second floor was where they had the 2,000 cages. The third floor was where the two Cuban guys lived. And the Cubans uh, would take care of the uh, the mice. And um, once Judy got to New Orleans, and uh, again, Lee meets her within 24 hours of Lee getting in New Orleans. Judy's already there. And the next 24 hours, he introduces her have to David Ferry. They have lunch together. And then they have a party at David Ferry's apartment where Mary Sherman shows up so that she can see that Mary Sherman is actually part of this operation out of David Ferry's apartment. And so when the Cuban guys, they take 50 or 60 mice that have tumors in them, put them in a cardboard box and walk them over to David Ferry's apartment when Judy and Lee are there, which is on Thursday and Friday afternoons. And Lee and Judy kill the mice. They cut out the tumors. They throw them in a blender. They grind them up. After they weigh them, of course, and they uh, filter out the cells. They put the sauce in test tubes. They make uh, slides for uh, microscopic examination. And throw it all in a lunchbox, and then Judy carries this over to Dr. Uh, Mary Sherman's apartment. She has a key. She's able to let herself in, deposit the lunchbox, and then she goes back to to work at the Riley Coffee Company, where both she and Lee are both employees of the Riley Coffee Company. And what's important, 
in this setup is that she is working for the executive vice president, who's a former FBI agent, and is a partner with Alton Oshner in this um, Inca anti-communist propaganda mill, and that Moynihan, they, this ex-FBI guy, is approving Lee Oswald's time cards, and when he doesn't do it, Judy does it, because she is his executive secretary. So Judith Berry Baker's initials are on Lee Oswald's time cards from the Riley Coffee Company. Now, this is very important because of all the things that the Warren Commission put into the Warren Commission volumes as evidence, like the dental records of Jack Ruby's mother, they didn't bother to put in the time cards mm-hmm. from the Riley Coffee Company because they had Judy's initials on them. Wow. Any, that would have led any investigator to say, whose initials are these? Let's get her in here. And, and, One would think. <laughs> One would think. Uh, Ed, let's grab a quick call. It's our, uh, our media scientist friend, JFK assassination researcher Nelson Thal, uh, joining us. Hey, Nelson, how are you? Very good, Richard. Terrific subject. Uh, got a question for, uh, for Ed. Um, Sherman Skolnick was um, a student of, of uh, Mary Sherman's. And um, he mentioned on air years ago that on July 21st, 64, the same day that the Warren Commission showed up in New Orleans to take testimony was the same day that Mary Sherman was murdered. Or at least the day they found her body, yes. Yes. Any connection? Um, possibly. Um, I think... You know, there's there are many easier ways to kill somebody than to burn off their arm. <laughs> and in fact, that didn't even kill her. She her heart was still beating after that. Somebody had to terminate her. Uh, was she using that machine to to trigger or kill the virus? To and maybe it was accidental, or do you think it was definitely murder? I I, th- I personally think it was sabotage because they wanted to expose the research. Okay. They wanted to call the attention to the machine and to what was going on there. Okay, they easily could have shot Mary or stabbed her in her parking lot or something like that, and stole a purse and called it a street crime. Okay, there's just many easier ways to kill people. I think the and given all the safety equipment that was there, um, it's to me. What happened was somebody sabotaged the equipment, and Mary walked in and flipped the handle to turn on the electricity, and she was standing in front of a steel wall, and the electricity climbed up her arm and burned out her arm and rib cage, and the electricity went into the wall where it was routed to the ground by a cable, and it did not go down over her feet. But it didn't cross her heart, which is why she was still alive. Oh, dear. And, well, I don't want, again, want to get too far ahead here uh, because we're still sort of discussing, uh, you know, David Ferry and uh, which, and, and uh, Lee Harvey Oswald's involvement. But uh, are we going into a break? All right, Ian, we, we'll do that. We'll take a break and come back and uh, we'll find out who sabotaged the equipment and why. Ed Haslam is here talking about Dr. Mary's monkey right here on The Conspiracy Show. Ed Haslam is with us as we're discussing uh, well, connecting the dots. He's connected the dots between the, um, the grisly murder of a cancer researcher by the name of Dr. Mary Sherman uh, and a cancer-causing monkey virus that uh, had tainted the polio vaccine. Uh, now, was she 
unwittingly involved in the weaponization of that same that same virus, Ed? Well, she was wittingly involved in it, but that was all because she was working for Dr. Oshner, and um, that's what he wanted done. And she, you know, she was originally wittingly involved in the mutation of the monkey virus to develop an anti-cancer vaccine. Sure. Um, but once the Russian missiles came along, they were floating ideas across her um, lap, like um, if you could kill Fidel Castro, you could prevent World War III, kind of like killing Hitler would have prevented World War II or some stuff like that. And so she was a, a reluctant participant and thought that Oshner was naive in terms of understanding his role. But, but let's talk about what they were doing in the summer of 1963. Because I just said Judy brought the lunchbox back to Mary. Well, that Mary takes that stuff back and gives it more radiation. And then they send it back over to the mouse house, and they re-inject it into the mice. And what they're doing, this is a loop. And every time it goes around the loop, the bioweapon gets stronger and stronger and they are deliberately weaponizing this cancer causing monkey virus in the summer of 1963 with the stated purpose of killing fidel castro so they kill hundreds of mice and then they kill thousands of mice and then they say well let's see if this works on some monkeys and they start killing all the monkeys first south american monkeys and then african monkeys and then they finally say okay time to find out if it kills a human so where do you get a human you can kill and nobody's going to miss? Well, a good place would be death row at Angola Penitentiary in southeast Louisiana. So they arranged to have a prisoner shipped over from death row to this mental hospital up in Jackson, Louisiana. The mental hospital is run by the state of uh, Louisiana. It's called the East Louisiana State Hospital. And it's basically a hospital for the criminally insane. And because of that, there's a fence around it and a lot of security and guards at the gate and everything else. You just can't drive on campus without getting waved in by the guards. And so they need to bring the bioweapon from New Orleans up to Jackson, Louisiana, which is about four hours north of New Orleans, okay? And they need to figure out how to intercept this van that's got the prisoner in it so that they can drive onto the grounds of the hospital with the van looking like a convoy. So they get this black Cadillac in New Orleans, and um, David Ferry and Lee Oswald, who's part of this project with the uh, weaponizing this uh, monkey virus, they have the biological weapon, and they get driven up to Jackson. But they don't want to wait in Jackson because, you know, they're in this big black Cadillac and, you know, Jackson's this little tiny town. So they drive down the road about 12 miles to a place called Clinton, Louisiana, where the courthouse is. And they're going to wait by the courthouse, by the payphone. You know, this is days before cell phones. They're going to wait for the payphone to ring to say the prisoner has left the penitentiary. So that'll be their cue to go out and wait on an intersection by the highway. When they see the van, they'll get on the highway behind the van. They'll all show up in the mental hospital looking like a convoy. And so this is a wonderful plan, except for the fact that they picked a date at random, which was August 29th, 1963. And the day before that was August 28th, and that was the day that Dr. Martin Luther King gave his I Have a Dream speech in Washington, D.C. And because 
all the people involved in the civil rights movement knew that speech was coming. The Congress on Racial Equality had planned black voter registration drives all across the South, including in Clinton, Louisiana. So what you got there, here's the scene. It is Friday afternoon. There's a line of blacks waiting to register to vote. There's a bunch of angry whites standing over in the shade with their arms crossed. And there's this town marshal in the middle hoping there's not going to be some sort of violence or, or, or trouble. Okay, so he's standing there keeping an eye on the scene, and into the scene drives the black Cadillac. At this point, the marshal, John Manchester, goes over to the black Cadillac and says, may I see your um, driver's license, please? And the guy pulls out his driver's license and says, I am Clay Shaw of the International Trade Mart. <laughs> that well, name. Clay Shaw is a guy that Jim Garrison arrested sure. for conspiracy to assassinate President Kennedy. And the essence, the Garrison's case, was he had connected Shaw to Lee Harvey Oswald. Well, then Lee Harvey Oswald gets out of the car, goes over and gets in line with the blacks. He, he, he wants to know if he can register to vote just because he's white, you know. <laughs> and he gets up there and he signs in, Lee Harvey Oswald, on the thing. So we know Oswald was there. There's we know the paper Clay trail. Was there. Wow, there's the paper trail. Yep, and then they, the phone finally rings, and they go over, and they inject the patient, and then they drive another four hours back to New Orleans. So they spend all day doing this. But what they don't know at this point, they don't know if the bioweapon has kicked in. But there's a blood test that they can do 48 hours after the injection, which will tell you. And this is a very sophisticated blood test. There's only a handful of people in the country that know how to do it. And one of the people that has been trained to do this particular blood test is Judith Ferry Baker. So Lee Oswald drives Judith Ferry Baker from New Orleans back up to Jackson, again, four hours. She's wearing a little nurse's uniform, so she looks like she fits in. They pick up an employee. Uh, so they've got somebody in in Jackson. They've got somebody in the car with a uh, that works at the mental hospital. So they get waved in, and they go in there. And Judy does the blood test. And yes, this guy has got the cancer. And she now realizes that she basically has been duped into murder. Okay, and you know she was there because she was trying to find the cure for cancer, not to to murder unsuspecting volunteers who have no idea that they're signing up to. Uh, what they're signing up for. And so she writes this note of, of protest to Dr. Oshner, who's really running this whole project. Her and, death warrant. She just signed her death warrant. Yeah. I mean, he flips out. He said, you know, nothing was to ever be put in writing. And and she is she hot in the college student, right, criticizing the um, head of the American Cancer Society <laughs> over ethics, you know? Right. right. I mean, How he, dare he she? just flips out, and he, he kicks her out of medicine, says you're not going to Tulane in the fall like we talked about. Um, you are out of medicine, and um, you are lucky you are leaving the town with your teeth in your mouth. Okay? And she is told very clearly by David Ferry um, um, before long that she absolutely has to keep her mouth shut or she will be killed. And um, by Carlos, I mean by Santos Traficante's people down in Florida, and and so she leaves New Orleans about September first. But here's a couple of really important points with this conspiracy thing: is that it's this all happens at the end of August. Well, August is when Lee Oswald is doing all the street theater stuff. He's getting into the fight with Carlos Bringier. He's handing out the right. fair, fair pay for, for Cuba. Cuba. Yes. And out of Floyd Bannister's building. 
Or, well, uh, actually, Guy out Bannister, of Clay Guy Shaw's Bannister, building. I mean, right in front of Clay Shaw's building, and um, which is the international trademark. And but he's operating th- out of the same building where Guy Bannister was on Canal yeah, Street. Yeah, yeah, he he was, but where he, where he gets filmed and photographed with the Fair Play for Cuba committees, right? And, uh, and where three other members of Operation Mongoose are photographed in the in the same. He's a busy guy. He's running a couple of operations. They're involved in several operations. That's right. And and the guys he gets photographed with, like Chauncey Holt, are, have admitted to being the people that made Oswald's phony IDs, and they were there delivering weapons to um, the anti-Castro people. I mean, it was all part of the kill Castro stuff. And but so that brings you up to September first, but. Uh, a month before that, July 29th, Lee tells Judy, look, these people are going to, are serious about killing Kennedy. And what I'm concerned about is they're asking me to do all this stuff in August that makes me look like a communist. And they're telling me that they're doing this so I can take the bioweapon to Mexico City and get into Cuba. But I think they're setting me up to take the fall for killing Kennedy. All right. I mean, Lee has figured this out in July. All right. Now, Judy has to leave town September 1st, September 2nd. And Lee now does nothing in September. Right. He sits on his porch and flip flops and reads. What's he doing? He's waiting for the prisoner to die because the moment the prisoner dies, they hand Lee the bioweapon and send him to Mexico City. Right. To try to get to Cuba. Right. Aha. Uh-huh. Or at least that's what they tell him. I mean, the problem is you can't trust any of these people. Well, there's some dispute as to whether Oswald was ever in Mexico City. Well, there is no hard evidence that says he is because all the photos are not of him and stuff like that. But um, according to what Oswald tells Judy, what actually happens that day, I mean, what the FBI says is, look, there's three legs to this. There's New Orleans to Houston, Houston to Laredo, Laredo to Mexico City. And the FBI has all kind of witnesses that see Lee on the second and third leg, but nobody sees him on the first leg. Exactly. Listen, we, Ed, regrettably, we only have about uh, two minutes here. Um, let's, um, let's just bring it to um, July 64 uh, and the discovery of, of Mary's body. So well, my, my favorite point on, on this is that Jagger Hoover write, writes a memo to the uh, sec, uh, special agent in charge in New Orleans office and, and CCs every other uh, sack in the country and instructs his agents not to investigate the Mary Sherman murder on grounds of jurisdiction. Well, Mary Sherman was electrocuted on federal property, mm. stabbed on federal property, put in a body bag and brought back to her apartment. So it was in FBI jurisdiction, and I think the point of bringing her back to her apartment was to get it off of that. But on page two of that same memo, they, they're talking about Mary Sherman, and they say somebody's name was found in her address book, and that name is six letters long, and there's no first name. I think it's Oswald, O-S-W-A-L-D. And I wrote the FBI and Department of Justice, and they won't tell me that one word. There's something about that one word 50 years later they won't tell me. Who, saw, who do you think sabotaged the, the equipment, and, and why? Well, you know, that's a question we're all going to have to... To answer, I think it was a battle for the White House personally, but it may have been it, it, it was heavy, high-level politics, whatever it was. Okay, and you know nobody told me, hey, I did this. You know, so you're left in the world of conjecture and stuff. But I think you have to say 
if that had happened, who would have wound up in the White House? That's one of the ways of looking at it. Um, the other, you know, and, you know, I'm just going to leave that there. Yeah, People it, are going to have to think up their own answers. Well, on that one. and they need to get, go out and get uh, a copy of the book. How can they get a copy of Dr. Mary's Monkey? Oh, it's available anywhere. First of all, it's at the Conspiracy Culture. And if you're sitting out in Yellowknife, you can get it on um, Amazon.ca. Um, and uh, it's available in Kindle in an audio book and um, hardcover, softcover, you know. It's in the catalog. You can go into any bookstore in Canada and order it. Okay, tell us quickly. Uh, the first annual Oswald Conference this October in New Orleans. You'll be there. Tell us about that quickly. Well, w- that's set on Oswald's birthday, October 16th through 18th. And um, really good lineup of people to see who they all are. Just go to oswaldconference.com. I mean, it's Jim Mars, Robert Roden, um, me, some other people, um, Judith. Uh, Barry Baker's going to be there, uh, Joan Mellon. I mean, it's a really good lineup, and it's all about Oswald's Summer of Secrets. I mean, that's the title of it. And it's um, people looking at what really happened. I mean, not the BS from uh, the Warren Commission, that, that junta that published Hoover's Lies. Well, this is a really I- important chapter um, that you've exposed, and it's we, we really so. so elemental in understanding what happened, not only in New Orleans, but also in Dallas. Dr. Mary's Monkey. Spell out the name doctor. DrMary'sMonkey.com is the website. Dr. Mary's Monkey, the book. Ed, uh, a real pleasure. Thanks for joining me. Thank you, Richard. RichardSerrett.com. It's still up. It's still operational. Before we move it over to StrangePlanet.ca, uh, say hello on Twitter, at Richard Serrett. And as always, follow the truth. You're listening to an exclusive podcast of The Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett. Heard every Sunday night from 11 p.m. to 1 a.m. on Zoomer Radio, the new AM740. Live from Toronto, Canada, Earth, The Conspiracy Show with Richard Sarrett on Zoomer Radio. Thanks for inviting me into your home, your long-haul truck, your taxi, your camper, RV, cabin in the woods, what have you. And a, a big hello to those of you listening in on our flagship station, AM740 Zoomer Radio. And in a couple of weeks, Zoomer will flip the switch and you'll be able to listen to this show and all the shows here on Zoomer uh, on both AM740 and FM96.7. A special welcome to those of you listening in the good old US, USA on one of our affiliates and those listening in online at zoomerradio.ca on the uh, Zoomer Radio app, which is a good one if you haven't checked it out. Zoomer Radio app, it's just fabulous. Uh, and also the Conspiracy Show app, which is a, a free download. Uh, those of you listening in on the podcasts at iTunes, Stitcher Radio, Talk Zone, uh, wherever and however you're listening, Thanks for joining me. You are among friends. Uh, word just in from Los Angeles. Horror film director Wes Craven, dead at 76. Uh, Nightmare on Elm Street. Uh, how many, my word, how many films were in that franchise? Uh, and of course, the Scream movies. The Last House on the Left, one of his earlier films back in the uh, 1972, I think that came out. Wes Craven, uh, American film director, writer, producer. Uh, an actor, uh, dead, we're getting word, at uh, 76. Sad news. All right, uh, rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson is standing by uh, to join us and talk about some of the strange deaths 
in the world of not only rock and roll, but entertainment. Uh, I guess if you're a performer, there's probably no, no better way to go out than on stage. And there have been a number of notable ones. Um, one of the things that sort of inspired me to do this show with, <clears throat> excuse me, with Gary is uh, I saw the, um, the producers, the film, a couple of weeks ago with uh, Zero Mostel and Gene Wilder and the great comedian Dick Sean uh, playing a very unique twist on, uh, uh, in the role of the Fuhrer, Adolf Hitler. Uh, of course, a, a, a classic um, a movie. It was also a Broadway film, of course, and um, Mel Brooks, one of his classics. Uh, but Dick Sean, one of those performers who died on stage during his routine, at the microphone, collapsed on stage, and of course everyone in the audience thought it was part of the act. And so he just laid there, dead, for I don't know how long before someone finally figured out, no, this is not part of the act. But that's, how way, that's the way Dick Sean, a very funny man, a brilliant comedic mind, that's the way he checked out. And there are, there's really a long list of uh, performers that have gone that way. And so uh, we'll, uh, we'll get into some of these unusual deaths not only in uh, the the the, uh, the world of rock, but also in just in entertainment in general. Our Gary Patterson will be with us in just a few moments. Uh, if you missed the announcement, great news for those of you who are fans of the Conspiracy Show with Richard Serrett television program. We are back on for season four, so we'll be delivering brand new episodes this fall on uh, Vision TV. And uh, special thanks to Moses Neimer who has been so supportive and really has great vision. Uh, I'm so thrilled uh, to call Vision home for the, uh, the TV program. Again, season four of The Conspiracy Show this fall across Canada on Vision TV and uh, further announcements uh, coming on the actual air date and the episodes that you're going to see. And I want to mention again the website. Uh, in just a few short days strangeplanet.ca and strangeplanet.tv. Both of those URLs will take you to the new landing page. And as I say, they are busy now sort of migrating over to the new server, so that will be operational maybe even tomorrow. Uh, And once you land there, strangeplanet.ca, strangeplanet.tv, from there you can go to the uh, radio page, which will look exactly the way it does now, richardserrett.com. There'll be a TV page. There'll be a live event page. It's just easier to find and easier to spell. So I will be directing you now, uh, from now on, to strangeplanet.ca and strangeplanet.tv. If you want to join our HOA Hangout on Air, go to my Twitter feed, at Richard Serrett, find the tweet containing the HOA link, and you just click on that, and voila, uh, you can see me in studio. And you'll also be able to see uh, my guest, I believe, we hope, on his uh, webcam. Uh, down in Knoxville, Tennessee, and that would be our good friend R. Gary Patterson, who is a native Tennessean, and he has a passion for rock and roll. As a published author with Simon & Schuster, his uh, his work portrays many fascinating events that helped shape musical history, from Robert Johnson through current groups making a place for themselves among rock and roll's standing legends. In 1996, nearly 20 years ago, hard to believe, Gary released his first book entitled The Walrus Was Paul. Immediately, the book became highly sought after. Beetlefest catalog proclaimed The Walrus Was Paul as one of its best-selling titles of the year 
And due to the instant success of that book, Patterson found himself as a highly sought-after radio personality. He appeared on all the syndicated Beatle, Beatle radio shows, including Westwood One's The Beatle Years, ABC Radio's Beatle Archives, The Breakfast with the Beatles, you name it. I mean, he was the go-to guy uh, to really sort of unravel the whole Paul is dead mystery, which uh, sort of bang- began in the, uh, in the late 1960s. And it still has life. A lot of people still think Paul McCartney died in a car crash in 1966 and was replaced by a, uh, a double, a very talented double, apparently, perhaps even more talented than the original, if the, uh, the theory is to be believed. Uh, and, uh, well, that all brings us to his, uh, his third book, really, that uh, was published back in 2004, and it's called Take a Walk on the Dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. If you don't have a copy of this book, I really suggest you get a copy, and I'm sure uh, our friends at Conspiracy Culture have it in stock. Uh, but if you love sort of combining the, uh, the world of rock with, the, uh, with mysteries and urban legends and unsolved murders and deaths and so forth, this is the book for you. Take a Walk on the Dark, on the dark Side, Rock and Roll Myths, Legends, and Curses. Great pleasure to have my good friend R. Gary Patterson with us once again. Hey, R. Gary, how are you? Can you hear me? He's not hearing me. All right, Ian, do you want to try and uh, reconnect with Gary? Are you there, Gary? I see Richard, him. can you hear me? I can. There you are, my friend. How are you? There I am. I don't know. I guess my phone was on mute. So well, how are you? I'm very well. And uh, it's great to see your face there on, uh, on uh, the Google Hangout we're doing tonight. How about that? I was mentioning off I'm the top. Here. Yes, I, I was mentioning off the top, uh, Gary. I watched the producers and uh, uh, Dick Sean, of course. Uh, what a great role that was! Uh, very controversial film, you know, sort of uh, mm. making fun of uh, Hitler and the Third Reich. But it's uh, that was Mel. That's Mel Brooks for you. Uh, and did it just spring time for Hitler spring, in Germany? That's right. And uh, which you know led me to think about you know Dick Sean um, dying during a performance. And, uh, you know, a little digging reveals that there's just a whole host of performers who went out that way. And, uh, you know, we're going to talk about some of them tonight, uh, certainly from the world of rock, which is your beat. But I, I, I want to go back to, I remember, uh, uh, I think it was from, uh, was it Graceland, Paul Simon's song, The Late Great Johnny Ace, or was that from another album? may have been Graceland. Yeah. You know, Johnny Ace, Johnny Ace taught, Record companies had to make millions of dollars off dead rock stars. Well, tell us about who Johnny Ace was, because that's sort of the, that's sort of one of the in terms of the rock arena. That's one of the first sort of prominent deaths, right? Actually, I would say that was the first major death in rock and roll history. Right. I mean, everybody thinks about Buddy Holly in nineteen fifty nine, but we got to go back a little earlier with Johnny Ace because. Everything from the blues, where you had blues artists who were sort of tormented by the concept of, uh, well, playing the devil's music on Friday and Saturday night and going to church and singing hymns on Sunday. And if you take a look at Johnny Alexander, his father was a minister. And when he started his career, in order not to embarrass his father, he took the name Johnny Ace. And, of course, his greatest song was called Pledging My Love. You might have heard that. Absolutely. That's, it's, that's yeah, the number one fact, hit. Matter of fact, what's odd about that song, Richard, is I think it was the last song Elvis Presley cut in the Jungle Room uh, in Memphis. 
Yeah, is that which right? Which is kind of bizarre that he would do a Johnny A song as his last one there. Interesting. And but, was that ever released? Was that on? Was that on? Uh, Moody I think it Blue? was on an album. One of one of his albums. I know that I'd read that he had cut it. Was one of the last. Okay. And uh, if it's so, then you know it goes back to that Memphis circle. You know, with uh, right on the the Mississippi River and everything else from Robert Johnson all the way in. But I know that Johnny Ace, uh, you know, he had a good career. He started drinking a little too much, and he carried a gun with him. And normally the That's gun... a bad combination. The, yeah, well, you know, in the South, uh, some of the good old boys down here, they enjoy taking their guns and going out and shooting stop signs with them and uh, traffic signs, and he did the same. So he carried it with him, and one night in Texas, he was playing with Big Mama Thornton, and, of course, Big Mama Thornton is one of the uh, great blues singers of all time, and they were doing a show, I think it was in Houston, it was somewhere in Texas, and during the break... Johnny Ace was walking around with his pistol, and he had his girlfriend with him, and he had one of his girlfriend's female friends also, and he was walking with him, and he'd stop, and he'd take his pistol out and point it at his girlfriend's head and pull the trigger. And then he'd stop, and he'd take the pistol, and he'd pull a hammer back, and he'd put it next to her friend's head and pull the trigger. Well, Big Mama Thornton saw this. So she reached over and grabbed the gun from him. Now, she was a very large lady, and uh, she was strong. Well, Johnny Ace, being a little intoxicated, didn't like the idea that she would grabbed his gun, so he had to fight and get it back, which he did. And she was yelling at him to put the gun up, not to take it out, and he took the gun, and he showed it to her, and he said, look, this isn't loaded. And he pulled the hammer back and put it next to his head, Pulled the trigger, and, well, the gun was loaded, and he booked his one-way ticket to uh, rock and roll heaven. And when he did that, his record label put out the late, great Johnny Ace. And that's why, well, Paul Simon was talking about was the idea, you know, that when he heard of Johnny Ace died, he had to go out and buy his greatest hits. And isn't that the way we are? I mean, we listen to artists all the time on the radio, and we think, well, how great that is. And then what we do is we go out and uh, if something happens, we want to buy everything to reminisce about that artist. So I guess the record labels were shown that if you're a dead artist, you can make much more money and uh, for the label because they never run out. And it's like Jimi Hendrix said. He said, it's funny how people love the dead. Once you're dead, you're made for life. And I'm guessing that uh, very little of that money made its way to Johnny Alexander's estate. I would say you'd be right. So a double tragedy. Yeah, he had a slew yeah. of hits. Uh, and But really, I, I mean, we, we, we call him sort of the first famous uh, dead rock star, but he sort of preceded rock uh, because he died in 1954. So I guess he'd be more of a kind of a rhythm and blues artist. However... Uh, here we are, pledging my love, Johnny Ace. Our Gary Patterson is with us here on The Conspiracy Show, and uh, we are talking about, it's kind of a macabre topic, but it's uh, performers, entertainers, rock and rollers who died on stage. Back with more of our conversation right after this. You're listening to The Conspiracy Show. My name is Richard Serrett. Rock and roll investigator R. Gary Patterson is with us live from Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, he, the author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, and this is really, it's, it just, it stands up. I mean, it, this is, uh, for me, just absolutely essential. 
uh, to have a copy of this book. Uh, Gary, are you? I mean, you must have enough stories to fill several other volumes in, just in this category. Are, are you? Are you? Are you still collecting these stories? I'm still collecting them. Actually, I'm working on my next book. Can you hear me? I can. All right. Okay, What's good? Can you tell me what and, it's about? Uh, well, right now I'm collecting some other stories. I'm writing it up. It'll be. Uh, It'll be after some of the other stories that may go a little before Take a Walk on the Dark Side, and I'm trying to find some more current ones. Because, you know, it takes it takes time to be a legend. And, you know, if you're a new group, you might have some tragedy. But normally, I I like that Twilight Zone twist to everything. Absolutely. You know? And I, I just don't want to write a book about, oh, I don't know, obituaries or you know, farewells to great artists. I mean, that's not my thing. I I prefer something that's sort of twisted. I remember watching The Twilight Zone when I was little, and and I always liked that twisted ending. And in rock and roll, you have a lot of stories like that, like what we're talking about tonight has a number of twists. Uh, before we get back to some rock and rollers, I just wanted to share... Uh sort of outside that field, and, and comedian Harry Einstein. Now, he was the father of Elbert Brooks. Now, Elbert yes. Brooks, we're all familiar with Elbert. He died, Harry Einstein died, while performing. It was a, um, it was at the Friars Club, and they were roasting Lucille Ball and Desi Arnaz. Huh? And, and this is, uh, I guess this is back in the late 50s. Now, get this. When Harry Einstein died, he collapsed onto Milton Berle. <laughs> wow. Oh, my gosh. And there was someone else who died on the Dick Cavett show, wasn't there? That's right. He was. This is kind of ironic because he was a longevity expert. He, uh, Yeah, he was um, – uh, let me see. I'm trying to remember his name. But, yeah, he had a heart attack right there on the show. But I don't believe – I don't know that the episode ever aired. No, they didn't air the show because the other guest – Kept looking at Dick Cavett and whispering, "There's something, ba- something bad wrong here." And uh, of course, he'd noticed the guy had expired on the air, so they never ran it. The show was never put on. That's oh, his name was Jerome Rodale, and this was the yeah. guy that was quoted as saying, "I'm going to live to be a hundred unless I'm run over by a sugar crazed taxi driver." And then, then he was a guest on Cavett's show at the age of uh, seventy-two, and he had a heart attack right there on the program. Now, I mean, I mean. How odd is that? Yeah, there's irony, and obviously, uh, you know, any death diminishes us all. But, uh, you know, this is – it's fascinating how, how some of these people go. Now, I wanted to talk about this – this uh, the combination of, uh, well, rock and rollers and electricity. There have been a number of uh, rock and rollers who have died via electrocution. Now, I don't know that they necessarily died on stage performing, but they were they were at least playing when they when they died. It may have been in a home studio uh or uh or elsewhere, but they they died while while playing or practicing. And uh, one that comes to mind is Les Harvey. And I don't know a lot about the Stone Crows. This was a Glasgow rock band. What can you tell us about mm-hmm. Les Harvey and Stone the Crows? Stone the Crows with uh, Maggie May, I think, was the lead vocalist. And, uh, you know, the band, the band was uh, emerging. One of the, one of my favorite performers from Stone the Crows was uh, James Duar. And if you're familiar with that name, he was the bass player and singer for Robin Trower on the first few albums and had a very unique, very unique voice. But, one thing that you have to remember <clears throat> if you're a rock star 
and you're playing live, is do not stand in standing water. Oh, dear. And do not have your hands wet when you go up to a microphone stand because if the microphone polarity is different, oh, let me tell you, I mean, I've played in rock bands, and when my lips would touch a microphone and I had my guitar in my hand and a cable going back to my amp and it was not, but the polarity was different, I would shoot a blue spark about a foot from my mouth to that to the mic, and it would just, you know, it, it was it was terrible. And I wasn't standing in water. Of course, I never would have stood in water, but that's what happened. I electrocuted on stage, and I know that Stone the Crows, they did attempt to go on with Jimmy McCullough. And if you remember Jimmy, he was a guitar player for uh, Paul McCartney. And he, I believe he was also in the Small Faces for a while, wasn't he? He was. And, uh, and well, actually, his big band was Thunderclap Newman. Right, right. It, you know, something in the air, but... I remember, if you ever heard the song uh, Junior's Farm, there's a line where Paul McCartney sings, uh, Take Me Down, Jimmy, and then McCullough did the guitar part. Now, I think that's great. And, uh, you know, just to think that the band decided they'd lost their heart and they couldn't go on, even if they had McCullough. I think they cut one more album. But I also have a good friend. His name is Leo Lyons. Who ah, plays yes. Ten Years After. He'll play in Ten Years After. Right. and. Uh, I did an interview with him a few years ago that you've heard. But one of the things about Leo, he was talking about playing at Woodstock. And uh, 10 years after, went on right after the heavy rains. And he said that when he was playing on stage, he was the stage was just soaking wet. And he would look at the electrical cables and he could see them arcing. Oh, dear. Seeing the power sheet. And he's on stage. And he was, they were all afraid they were about to be electrocuted. He told me that's why they played so fast. <laughs> but I'm going home so they could get through faster. That's but, around the uh, time, if you listen to the, uh, the Woodstock uh, album, uh, you'll hear, I don't know if it was Wavy Gravy or someone making the announcement because the winds were picking up and the rain was coming down and they were saying, stay away from the towers, stay away from yeah. the towers. So that's when, right. when, when 10 years after we're on stage. Yeah, right, right then. And it was at night, and uh, they did the show. And, of course, Leo told me that as soon as they got off the helicopter, that Pete Townsend came running over saying, don't eat anything, don't drink anything, they've got acid and everything. So at the end of the performance, 10 years after Woodstock, somebody puts a watermelon on stage. And Alvin Lee picks the watermelon up, puts it over his shoulder, and carries it off. And I said, did you eat the watermelon? He said, oh, no, we didn't eat the watermelon. So... You know, you're sitting here and you're thinking, I mean, you know that you can be electrocuted. Now, today, you have wireless transmitters that you can put on your guitars, and you don't have that cable that's holding you into your amp, so that helps them. But, you know, I mean, I have seen performers that I've been playing at concerts, and I've seen performers knocked out on stage with the polarity of the mics, and I've seen a lightning strike that knocked out about four or five people off stage. So if it's raining, you know, you don't need to be doing a concert. And I'd say it'd be bad in the state on, in the crowd as well. Absolutely. Yeah, it's a deadly combination. And uh, it claimed an, another, uh, and that would be Keith Ralph of the Yardbirds died from electrocution. Now, was he on stage yeah. or was he pr- practicing or what happened there? You know, there is an urban legend about uh, about Keith Ralph. And first of all, you got to remember that he is the man who founded the, the Yardbirds. 
and he was the one to entice Eric Clapton to come in and play. So you had Clapton, Keith Ralph, Jim McCarty on drums, Paul Samuel Smith on bass, and then you had uh, Chris Dreja on rhythm guitar. And if you know the story, uh, when you hear the song For Your Love, Eric Clapton quit. That was the only song he played on on that album. Because, you know, he was a, bu- a blues purist, and he didn't like the pop direction the Yardbirds are going in. So what he wanted to do was simply start another band and leave the Yardbirds, which he did. And, of course, Jeff Beck came in. And i got to tell you, Richard, you may know this, too, that Jeff Beck did a heck of a lot more for the Yardbirds than Eric Clapton could have ever done. I mean, if Clapton had stayed, the Yardbirds, to me, would have been like John Mayall and the Bluesbreakers. Right, right. But the unique guitar sounds of Jeff Beck actually drove the psychedelic age. And then, of course, they had another guy named Jimmy Page who played with them as well. And That's an excellent point. I'd never thought of that. I mean, you know, it's not that you're diminishing Clapton as a guitarist. It's just in terms of what the Yardbirds ended up being and what we know the Yardbirds, and of course they give birth to, to Led Zeppelin, had, that would have all changed had Clapton stuck with the band. It would have. It's something I think about because uh, I noticed that you played as a bumper song, Heartful of Soul. Sure, one of their and, classics. Yeah, great one. And that's with uh, Jeff Beck. And when I listen to Heartful of Soul for that tone that he has, and I listen to Over, Under, Sideways, Down, and one of my favorites is Shapes of Things, because Jeff Beck just totally took the guitar in a whole new direction. But I also think that Keith Ralph may have gotten tired of being in a band that had three guitar gods. And Yeah, he's the odd man out. Yeah, and you know I think he wanted to play a little softer music, because after... He left the Yardbirds, and I know he had some health issues, too. Uh, I think it was maybe asthma, but I know that he started a band with his sister called Renaissance, and they were playing softer, softer music. And I think even he and Jim McCarty put a band together, the original drummer from the Yardbirds, and it was more like a Simon and Garfunkel type thing, which really didn't go over well. So after he leaves Renaissance, he puts a heavy metal group together called uh, Armageddon, and uh, which is kind of ironic, you know, the last war. Yes, yes. But, uh, he was in a basement studio in his house with a guitar and uh, was playing, and the floor was wet. And supposedly the story goes that he was staying over, standing over a gas pipe, and he was shocked severely but he was so sick and frail that it led to his electrocution. He was dead when they came downstairs. Now, here's a guy who was getting out of the Yardbirds because he didn't like the the guitar sounds, and he's killed by an electric guitar. So it's kind of another little sense of irony there with Keith Ralph. I'll uh, say. Our Gary Patterson yeah. is with us, rock and roll investigator and uh, the author of The Walrus Was Paul. If you ever, uh, I mean, this is the, to me, the definitive book on uh, the whole Paul is dead legend that, that uh, came out of the, uh, the late 1960s uh, and continues to live to this day in, in some quarters. Uh, the Walrus Was Paul and his uh, latest is Take a Walk on the Dark Side. We're talking rock and roll, uh, urban legends, myths, uh, and... Uh, tragic deaths while uh, on stage, for the most part, but not only rock and rollers. A lot of uh, people will remember, of course, the uh, the great actor Tyrone Power. 
Now, a Power actually died while performing. He suffered a heart attack while filming a fencing scene in a film called Solomon and Sheba. Now, he didn't die right there. He, he died soon after uh, being loaded into the ambulance. Uh, do you remember Tyrone Power, Gary? Am I dating you? <laughs> well, I can remember watching him on the uh, classic movies that ran on television. He he was a little before my time, but uh, I do remember the name. I do remember watching him in a lot of movies. And basically, when television first came in, I remember that, you know, there were a lot of older movies that came on, like Turner Classic Movie Network. And uh, what you have there, you know, you would have have some Tyrone Power features. I know that he was considered to be one of the more handsome uh, leading men in Hollywood. And, uh, you know, that his death was a terrible tragedy. And I knew that he died of a heart attack when he played. And it seems like heart attacks seem to be one of the number one ways for artists to go. Uh, yeah, uh, it seems to me, uh, was it Johnny Guitar Watson? Did he not die on stage mm. of a heart attack? Well, he did, actually, yes. And, uh, you know, Johnny Guitar Watson is, is a name that a lot of people probably aren't familiar with. But uh, I think his career lasted at least 40 years, and uh, he was able to transcend. I even think he played some funk besides blues at the end, and I believe he died... On stage, was it in Germany, I believe? I'm not and, sure, but uh, you, yeah, you mentioned uh, he was kind of known as the father of funk. I yeah, mean, he was, yeah, he was he, there from the get-go. Yeah, he was at the beginning. I guess you can put he and Rick James and some of the few others in there. He had a few songs that transcended, but, you know, it's unusual because most blues artists don't really transcend as well. You know, they, they stay in. I mean, Muddy Waters had a little disdain for rock and roll. You know, because he was a pure blues artist. And uh, when Chuck Berry came on the Chess Records, you know, Muddy Waters really didn't think very much of the music. All right. Uh, Now, we will uh, take a time out here in uh, just moments. And when we come back, we'll continue to discuss some of the, uh, the great rock and rollers and other performers that have died on stage or during rehearsal or perhaps backstage, our Gary Patterson, the author of Take a Walk on the Dark Side, right here on The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. Welcome back. He is the Fox Mulder of rock and roll, our Gary Patterson, on the line from Knoxville, Tennessee, and uh, the author of The Walrus Was Paul and Take a Walk on the Dark Side. We're talking rock and roll uh, legends, mysteries, and uh, strange deaths, uh, performers who died... On stage, you know, when you when you say that someone died on stage, it's kind of a crass expression, usually meaning that they uh, they kind of uh, screwed up their performance. But in this case, it has an entirely uh, different meaning. It's the literal uh, meaning of the word dying on stage. You mentioned Johnny Guitar Watson. Uh, it was Yokohama, Japan. He was on tour there. I just looked that yeah. up, Gary. But yeah. something I didn't know about uh, Johnny Guitar Watson, I didn't know that he performed in Dr. Feelgood. And uh, that's a that was a, that's a real innovative band. And uh, for those who don't know their their work, Wilco Johnson is a really interesting uh, cat because he's one of those. He, I I don't know if he sort of invented this style of guitar playing. You would know, uh, Gary, but he's he actually is able to to strum and play lead at the same time. It's quite interesting to watch Wilco Johnson. Yeah, I mean, uh, if you played in a three piece band, you know, you had to be able to be able to play a great rhythm guitar, then you had to switch to lead. I mean, that's one thing about Billy Gibbons. I mean, he has a knack. ZZ Top, yeah. Playing, 
Yeah, and uh, playing rhythm and going into his solos and and the, a lot of the old blues guys. If you listen to Robert Johnson, I mean, it was all rhythm tracks with his lead on top. So, you know, going back to that blues influence was something there. But that was what Johnny Guitar Watson was known for. And I, and I mentioned Wilco Johnson because, well, those of you that are familiar with uh, a Game of Thrones. Uh, Wilco Johnson uh, has kind of a recurring role in. I, I haven't really sat down and watched that series, but I'm told he's just brilliant in it. He plays, I think it's the Executioner, and he is kind of a strange-looking individual. <laughs> but he had a brush with death. I mean, he was written off. He had pancreatic cancer, which is a death sentence, and he beat it. It's quite a, a miraculous story with uh, Wilco Johnson. Uh, I wanted to talk about someone. He didn't actually technically uh, die on stage, but he. He, uh, I'm talking about Jackie Wilson. Uh, I mean, he lingered a long time in a coma, but he actually yeah. was it on was it on Dick Clark's show? He had a heart attack or a stroke. I don't know if he was on Dick Clark when he did, or he was reg- or he was just in a regular performance. I know that he was big on Ed Sullivan and Dick Clark, and I don't know if he was doing what was the song he would. He was doing it, taking me higher. Well, I think I, I think. heard that the, the line he sang just before he collapsed was, my heart is crying. Yeah, well, okay, that would be lonely teardrops. Right, right. But I, I don't know if that's, if that's true. That, that could be an urban legend. Well, you know, I love urban legends. And we talked about Keith Ralph. There was a story that went along a long time ago that he died in his bathtub, that he was taking a bath playing his electric guitar. Now, you know, that's, that's terrible, but that's not true. But, I mean, it was actually everywhere. I mean, you went on the Internet, you looked at Keith Ralph, you heard the bit about the bathtub. So that was sad. And, uh, you know, but still being electrocuted in your wet basement, you know, playing the guitar, you got to stay away from water. You should have known better, you know. And, of course, I, I can agree that if his health was that bad, it probably helped uh, bring his uh, approaching death there. But Jackie Wilson, I mean, what a voice. And uh, the dance moves that Jackie Wilson had at the Apollo, Michael Jackson copied everything he did. Interesting. Well, so did Elvis. I mean, everybody watched Jackie Wilson to get the moves. And if you've never seen Jackie Wilson, you need to go to YouTube and check out some of his early performances on Ed Sullivan and and uh, Dick Clark to see the way he moved. I mean, he was a fabulous performer. And and he uh, he languished in a in a vegetative state for something like ten years before he finally died, didn't he? Yeah, that's what says a long time, long time. And, uh, I, and I remember an interview with Elvis Presley, uh, or at least it was attributed to Presley, uh, because as you mentioned, he was a huge fan of Jackie Wilson and felt such a great debt to Jackie Wilson that he would uh, often visit. Wilson in a hospital and would sit by his bedside and sing to him. Well, see, that's cool. And, uh, you know, it shows a, a great influence and a great appreciation. And and it's the way it should be. I mean, artists should take up for those who are in a state like that. And there should be money raised to make sure that it pays for that. And I know a lot of artists are actually broke. They don't make any money off the royalties. And you know, I was reading somewhere that Dick Dale, you know, the greatest surf guitar player, right, right. has to play at least $3,000 in performances to keep up with his medical care. And uh, he has a colostomy. He has, uh, you know, he's gone through all these terrible setbacks. And to me, you know, it just doesn't seem right. I mean, I know Dick Dale's in his 70s, and in the United States, there's Medicare, 
and there's Medicaid, and uh, there should be insurance, you know, available to him then, unless he's already maxed out and he has to keep going. But, I mean, he's a brilliant guitar player, can still play, but it's kind of sad that he has to play for his health insurance. That is tragic. Uh, doesn't necessarily want to be out there, and we and we know how grueling uh, the road can be. Uh, well, you mentioned you know being gravely ill. Another performer who was gravely ill, uh, but was still out there on the boards doing, and that was Tiny Tim. Tell me about uh, how uh, this—not exactly a rock and roller, but uh, Tiny checked out on stage as well. We did. I think he just got through playing and had a heart attack and died. I mean, if you remember Tiny Tim, you'd have to remember laughing. And he came on, and I remember watching him, and I thought, I thought he was a joke. I mean, I thought it was a gag. And, uh, you know, so that when it happened, you know, uh, he married Miss Vicky, he had all these things, and he was just a, a colorful character, but he looked like he made me a little deranged. And, uh, well, he was a novelty tulips. act, let's face it. He was a novelty act. He was a act novelty act. Tiptoe through the tulips. I, yeah, and he had this high, high falsetto voice that, you know, sounded like you were taking your fingernails and running it out of a chalkboard. But, uh, yeah, he had he died right after he left the stage. So, obviously, he must have had the heart attack while he was performing, and he kept on going. And uh, so, buried with his ukulele. Yeah, I mean, we ought to talk about how many artists were were buried with artifacts. Well, maybe we can touch on that when we come back. Our Gary Patterson, rock and roll investigator. Take a walk on the dark side. Well, we'll do more of that when we come back. Richard Serrett and The Conspiracy Show. Stay with us. And our Gary, our Gary Patterson stays with us as we talk about strange deaths from the world of entertainment, particularly rock and roll musicians. Now, here's one, uh, not a rock and roller, but this is one of the strangest. Uh, this is a number of artists have died on stage while conducting live performances, and we've been talking about that. There's one case, though, that's very unique, uh, or highly unique, probably the most ironic at the same time, and that's because, uh, well, it, it involved an, a little-known actress by the name of Edith Webster, and uh, she she never managed to make a name for herself during her lifetime, but she really left her mark in history with her bizarre death during a, a play called The Drunkard which was uh, being performed at the Towson Moose Lodge in Baltimore, the 60-year-old Edith Webster was playing the role of the grandmother. And according to the uh, plot of the play, during the second half of the show, just before the end, the grandmother, again, Edith Webster's character, had to sing, Please Don't Talk About Me When I'm Gone, after which she was supposed to slump dead onto the floor. Now, in the play, she's supposed to do this. She had been playing this role for eight years when on November the 24th, 1986, after singing the song, she fell to the floor dead. The audience, as always, was impressed with her performance, gave her a resounding applause, and uh, it was only later that uh, it was discovered she had actually had a fatal heart attack on stage. Edith Webster. All right, our Gary uh, Patterson, you wanted to talk about some of the the artifacts that musicians have been uh, buried with. We mentioned uh, Tiny Tim, tip, tiptoe through the tulips, and he was, of course, buried with his, his legendary ukulele right there in the coffin. What are some of the other things that rock stars have been buried with? Well, you know, I'll go back to Muddy Waters. And I always love this story because Muddy Waters played a red 
Telecaster, Fender Telecaster guitar. And when he died, when they were taking the coffin to the burial plot, everyone had left, they put the guitar in the coffin with him. And when they closed the lid, they kept pushing on the lid. It broke the neck of the guitar. But they closed it up, and they took him to the funeral burial plot, and someone had brought this beautiful uh, mural. It was a a wreath, and it had the, the guitar exactly as it looked. And as they were lowering the coffin into the ground, the neck broke off the floor just as it had when they closed it in the coffin. Now, that was a pretty strange story, wouldn't you think so, Richard? Oh, and tragic. I mean, listen, I know that, that, that people get very sentimental and they want their uh, their loved one to, to go into eternity with some favorite item. But, I mean, that, that guitar belongs in the Smithsonian. Yeah. Or the Rock and Roll Hall sad. of Fame. Yeah. And when Dwayne Allman died, there were all kinds of stories about what he was buried with. I know that uh, he was buried with a silver dollar. And that comes from the song Midnight Rider, and I've got one more silver dollar. So they left a silver dollar rolling. But, you know, one of the strange things about his death, and, I mean, I heard the story, they put a Corsidian bottle on his finger because he played slide guitar and a few other objects. But I had heard, and I tried to, I mean, I even tried to get in touch with the Allman Brothers to give me an answer to this. I never got the answer. Is that when Dwayne Allman died, he wasn't buried for almost a year. Well, actually, over a year. That's almost like the James Brown story. story. That's like with what happened with James Brown. Yeah, uh, no, or okay. maybe even Michael Jackson. On the other right. Way, you know. So, so what happened with with uh, Allman? Why why wasn't he buried? They kept him in storage. And I asked someone. They said, "Well, there was some, uh, you know, legal issues with his ex-wife." But you know, legal issues with your ex-wife doesn't mean that they're not going to bury you. But the real tragic thing is that one year and 13 days after Dwayne Allman was killed, Barry Oakley, his best friend, was also killed in a motorcycle accident, and they buried them both together. And they're buried in Rose Hill Cemetery. And they died almost in the exact Vegas same spot, didn't they? Yeah, two blocks away. And uh, so, you know, they were buried together. If you look at their graves, they've got a nice-looking Les Paul carved on Duane and a nice Fender bass on uh, Barry. So, you know, that was rather strange. And then probably to me, the strangest story was Ronnie Van Zant from uh, Leonard Skinner. I mean, I know he was buried barefoot with a fishing pole and his Texas hat or hat. And then several years later, there was an attempt to break into his grave in Jacksonville, Florida, they found his coffin pulled out, and Steve Gaines, the guitar player, who had also died in a plane crash, his ashes had been spilt. And this ghoulish grave robbery, the legend has that there was a bet to see if Ronnie Van Zant was buried with his Neil Young T-shirt. Uh-huh. I but hope Neil Young will plane. remember. A Southern man don't yeah. need him around anyhow, right? <laughs> exactly. And, uh, you know, which was terrible. So I know that Judy Van Zandt, his widow, had his body buried in another location and had tons of concrete placed on top of it so it wouldn't happen again. So I don't know if he was buried with his Neil Young T-shirt or not. So I guess uh, Judy's the one who'll have to say that story. But, you know, it's just really, you talk about collectors and you talk about 
breaking into the tombs of the pharaohs. You know, rock stars are the same. And I was told, I was flown out to L.A. to work on a documentary about Elvis was still alive. Now, I have no doubt in my mind that Elvis left the building in 1977. I know there's some who would disagree. But I was told by one of the men involved in this that he was paid, along with another man, to steal Elvis Presley's body in Memphis, and he was paid by Elvis's father, Vernon Presley, because he wanted to bury Elvis and Elvis's mother at Graceland. But you just can't bury people in your backyard. So he had to prove to the city of Memphis that they could not, you know, safely protect his son's remains. Right. I remember that and story. This, I think yeah, I heard it that's from you. Why that happened. Right. And when, and when you go to Memphis, you'll see Elvis is buried in the backyard with the grandmother and Vernon and, and his mom. So they're buried there now. But that was... That was put on. So that's another thing about moving it, moving someone away. And did they not? Uh, um, did they not also uh, bury the um, Elvis's twin, who was who died at birth, Jesse Garen Presley, uh, there as well? Well, you know, I'm going to have to make a confession. I've never been to Graceland. You believe that? I don't. You've never made no. the pilgrimage. We should do it together because it's on my we list should. as well. We should. It's on my list too. All right, and we'll sit and, there in front of the, the grave, trying to sing, uh, trying to sing harmony like they did in uh, Spinal Tap. Yeah, Do you remember well, that I'm scene. Sure that we, yeah, I think we may be pretty close to as as good as Spinal Tap. <laughs> I want it. We just got a couple minutes uh, remaining. Uh, you mentioned uh, you mentioned Dwayne Allman, and mm-hmm. you mentioned Barry Oakley, who died almost mm-hmm. in the exact same spot. The bass guitarist. Uh, he died almost the exact same spot, the same way as, as Dwayne Allman, but a year later. But you told right. me this story uh, about the Allman brothers, and that Dwayne Allman actually was was declared dead, I believe, almost, or was very close to death, a year, almost to the day that he actually died. And, and there's a, an amazing 29th. story. Can mm-hmm. you tell me this story? October 29, 1970, Dwayne Allman had a drug overdose from massive overdose of heroin, no, of opium in Nashville. They rushed him to the hospital. His fingertips had turned blue. The emergency room doctor comes out and tells the band they're all frantic. He says, look, he's in bad shape. I don't think he's going to make it. So at that time, Barry Oakley, who was Dwayne's best friend, runs into the parking lot, falls down on his knees, and he starts to pray. And he's praying aloud. He says, God, just give him one more year. Just one more year to play. God just gave him one more year to pursue his dreams, pursue his music, and he was sobbing so hard and crying, and he stayed out there nonstop. And then all at once, within an hour, the doctor comes back in. He says, you know, I don't know. I've never seen anything like this, but he's going to make it. So Dwayne Allman recovered, but he died one year to the day on October 29, 1971, in a motorcycle accident in Macon. So I guess... You have to be careful what you wish for. Instead of a year, maybe wish for 20, you know. That's but, an amazing uh, story. Now, is is that a legend, or, I mean, do we have that on good authority, maybe from a member of the band, that that actually we have it. We have it from a member of the band. And uh, Butch Trucks, the drummer, right, right. tells that story. He was there, too. So, you know, it's just really odd, you know, how that works. And, of course, I know we're out of time, but, you know, maybe next time we can talk about Don Beg Daryl. You know who was murdered on stage? That's right. That happened fairly well, recently, didn't it? Did it? Did it not? Yes, it, 
Yeah, John, on the same anniversary of John Lennon's death on December 8th, and uh, which was just very strange. And then, of course, one of the guitarists in uh, Great White was killed in a nightclub fire that from pyrotechnics. That so, claimed a lot of people. Yeah, I remember yeah, that. Very yeah. tragic. And uh, But, you know, it's just odd how this happens. It's like, uh, you know, the Grim Reaper keeps his eye going, and uh, you never know. And I think if you're an artist, you know, sometimes at the height of your career when you're on stage, if you're Jackie Wilson uh, or anyone else, you know, you put it on the line, and it's terrible that they died on stage, but their music lives forever. So in that way, they're immortal. Always a pleasure, Gary. Now, you're going to be in the uh, the St. Louis area with our good friend George Norrie. Uh, yes, I will. I'll be in St. Louis with George. Can you give us a date? When is that happening? Well, it's... Gosh, I can't believe you asked me that. That's all right. You know what? People can just go to George Norrie, uh, georgenorrielive.com, and it'll be there. Yeah. I think it's January 20th or something like oh, it's, that. Oh, it's, yeah, okay. it's quite a while away. Okay. All right. Mm-hmm. Gary, my friend, thank you so much. Always good to be with you, Richard. rgarypatterson.com, and the book, of course, is Take a Walk on the Dark Side. All right, thank you to Ian Robertson and Albert Vinzel, as always, back next week with a brand-new program. Hope you'll be along for that. In the meantime, don't be afraid. There's nothing concealed that won't be revealed and nothing hidden that won't be made known. What you hear in the dark, speak in the light. What I say in a whisper, proclaim from the housetops. Move over, Aphrodite. I'm coming home. Good night. This podcast is proudly produced and presented by the Zoomer Podcast Network, home of great podcasts like Marilyn Lightstone Reads, Idea City on the Air, and The Garden Show.